So burials are a sensitive topic, and at the outset I want to make it clear that most of those under discussion this morning uh, were discovered by accident and sometimes unnecessarily further disturbed and removed. Unless burials impede road building or other necessary intrusions, they really should be left alone. A burial in a remote place doesn't mean that the grave was intentionally abandoned. It was most likely carefully placed there for a reason and deserves the same respect as a grave in a formally planned cemetery. The individuals who figure in this morning's discussion have taught us much, but in the end, whether a person lived a thousand years ago or yesterday, the dead deserve respect. With that in mind, I hope to offer you some insight, not as an archaeologist or as an uh, uh, anthropologist, but really just from my own observations and from a strictly historical perspective. So in the dim past, when mammoths roamed the hostile landscape, someone lay a small child to final rest, dusted him with red ochre, and placed precious heirlooms, also covered in red ochre, over him. Tucked into a rock shelter, there he lay undisturbed for thousands and thousands of years. A mile south of Willsall in present-day um, in present-day uh, Park County, Montana, in 1968, a large shiny rock fell into the bucket of a front-end loader, and workers digging into the fragmented rock debris recognized it as a large stone tool. They subsequently removed dozens of stone tools, some bone artifacts, and weathered human cranial fragments. All were covered in red ochre. Now, ochre is the first mineral pigment to be used by man, and it's commonly associated with ancient burials. Likewise, the color red is highly symbolic, representing transitions in a person's lifetime, such as passage into adulthood or from life to another world after death. The first known use of ochre is from an early human site some 285,000 years ago in Kenya. Neanderthals, uh, by 200,000 years ago, were using um, ochre. At Blamas Cave near Cape Town in South Africa, a chunk of carved, carved ochre um, dated to 100,000 to 80,000 years before present is the earliest sign of human creativity and among the very first evidence of critical thinking. Archaeologists have recorded early burials of remains saturated in ochre in the Baltic, in Europe, in Britain, in Spain, in Israel, New Zealand, and myriad other places. Methods and meanings no doubt changed over thousands of years, but in diverse examples of very early burial rites and beliefs, the color red and the use of ochre is often a common thread. Ochre is the main pigment in the earliest pictographs elsewhere in the world and also here in Montana. Now, most anthropologists now agree that the modern, modern humans likely entered the New World 
via the Bering Land Bridge at least 15,000 years ago, 15,000 years ago, and perhaps much earlier than that. Some cultural practices came with these early people. And so now we come back to the Anzig site, uh, named for Mel Anzig, the landowner. It's dated to 12,600 years ago, and the child's grave site is the first known burial in Montana, um, and it is the, the only Clovis period skeletal remains yet to be discovered in the New World. So it's really, really important. Clovis culture is among the earliest known in the Western Hemisphere. The first tools of these early people were discovered in 1932 in Clovis, New Mexico. Their exquisite stone we weapons have since been found across the United States. And their large, fine spear points indicate hunting prowess and the ability to bring down very large prey. Clovis tools span a millennium and then disappear from the archaeological record. Theories for their disappearance include climatic changes that affected their food source or hunting to extinction the animals that ensured survival. While DNA taken from the Antic child could not disclose the cause of death or health-related details, it did add significantly to the history of early New World inhabitants. The sample showed a one to two-year-old male descended from Asian and not European ancestors, supporting the um, migration theory that Clovis, pre-Clovis people arrived from Asia, perhaps via the Beringian land bridge, and may have then followed the ice-free corridor south along what is now the Rocky Mountain front. <coughs> Fossilized um, bison antiquous bone from this corridor dates to 13,000 years before present, further supporting the theory that the corridor provided an avenue for movement of both animals and people. The boy's DNA is the oldest recovered in, the, in, the, in North America and links his ancestry to descended indigenous American populations. Some believe that the spectacular Anzic site artifacts, which are, are on display at the Montana Historical Society in Helena, comprise a toolkit of utilitarian implements in various stages of manufacture. Beautifully fluted Clovis projectile points are the centerpiece, but there are also some 70 flaked stone bifaces, cores, scrapers, blades, and half a dozen long pieces of bone, like the one you see here, that may be either atlatl arrow foreshafts or what they call pressure flakers. Some of the artifacts are much older than the grave itself and had seen use. Others were new when placed with the child. The toolkit includes everything needed for survival and, and serves as a how-to manual showing various tools in various stages of manufacture. Their covering in red ochre is indicative of ritual activity and a practice reaching back thousands and thousands of years. Supplying this child in death with everything needed in life, uh, everything needed for survival, is evidence of belief in an afterlife. So moving forward in time to a site less than 2,000 years ago, um, this site was discovered in um, 1978 
by BLM employee Galen Wilcox, who reported human bone protruding from a low terrace on a primitive range, uh, range road across um, uh, access road along Iron Jaw Creek in Rosebud County. Although partially scattered when the road was cut, archaeologists determined that there were 20 sandstone rocks that comprised the cairn that marked the grave. A shallow pit had been, uh, had been dug to receive the body, and the rocks, loosely placed, had never intended to cover the body, nor was there any other covering over it. There were neither ochre nor grave goods, although grave goods probably could have washed away over time. Carbon-14 dated the remains to 1,790 years before present. This open-air cairn burial is similar to others of the period in the Northwestern Plains, and the osteology of the male person is consistent with individuals of Native American ancestry. The loss of all his teeth and extremely severe arthritis suggests that the person was probably more than 70 years old. While not all cairns are burials, some of them are. Many cairns, which are piles of stone, are way markers, uh, but it's impossible to tell whether it's a burial or a trail or a landmark. Some other man-made features on the landscape, um, like cairns, really should never be disturbed or dismantled. Some 10,000 years before the Anzig child's death, and 600 years before the death of the elderly man at Iron Jaw, or after the death of the elderly man at Iron Jaw Creek, there was a young man in his late 20s, probably late 20s, who was buried in another overhang rock known as Split Rock Ridge. In 1964, hikers on the Mahoney Ranch in Garfield County discovered bone protruding from a sandy crevice. Instead of leaving the items, bones and artifacts were subsequently removed. MSU professor Les Davis um, looked at the collection many years later and realized its significance. Carbon dating revealed that the individual was between 27 and 33 years old when he died and fixed his death at 1,200 years uh, ago during the Avonlea or late pre-contact period. His osteology is consistent with Northwestern Plains indigenous populations of the period. Items associated with the burial illustrate again traditions kept by early people for thousands of years. Like the Anzig child, this person was buried with prized weapons and personal items to carry him into the afterlife. There was no red ochre, but the location of the burial in a rock ledge overhang and the finely crafted projectile points that you see here associated with it suggest ritual similarities with the much, much older Anzig Child's burial. Among the artifacts was a slender mammal rib or long bone possibly used to pressure flake stone tools, which would be essential in sharpening arrow points. The split rock ridge arrow points were for use with a bow and arrow, not an atlatl, which underscores the uh, gradual change in weapon technology. But the bone tool, whatever its use might have been, you see here, is very similar to the long objects at the Anzic site, so you can compare the two, and supports the idea of burial with a toolkit.
Ornamental drilled shell beads like these, also found with the remains, suggest a very wide trade network and extensive travel. While some of the shells are local, these that you see on the slide are Pacific marine mollusks. And one drilled shell bead is of the Olivella species, which is found in the Gulfs of Mexico and California, and in both Pacific and Atlantic oceans. So in 1937, Oscar T. Lewis, who was a Glendive rancher and self-taught archeologist, discovered a circular mound on a bluff overlooking the Yellowstone River in Dawson County. It proved to be part of a rare 600-year-old earthen village, likely established by Crow Indians when they split from the Hidatsa and moved west from modern-day North Dakota. The Depression-era New Deal Works Progress Administration funded the excavations at the Hagen site, which is named for the local uh, landowner. Such projects brought needed employment, putting crews to work um, excavating sites during the Depression. The Hagen site includes the mound, an earthen lodge, and 20 cash pits. The settlement was probably much larger, eroded away by the river, and may be the key to a crucial turning point of a people in transition from farmers to bison hunters. The mound, or raised platform, 45 feet in diameter and level on top, formed a perfectly engineered circle. Apparently constructed all at the same time, it contained large numbers of human bone fragments, mostly skulls, mandibles, and teeth. Dr. William Malloy, who oversaw the excavations, concluded that it was a ceremonial complex. The skeletal remains represented many individuals. Some mandibles appeared violently disarticulated or separated with stone implements. Historically, the Mandan, Hidatsa, and other northern plains buried their dead above ground on raised scaffolds, like you see here kind of in the background. <coughs> the Mandan retrieved the bodies after the tissue disintegrated. They separated and bundled the bones, burying the skeletal remains, and placed the skulls uh, with the mandibles aggressively disarticulated in a mortuary circle. Malloy believed the Hagen site platform seemed to correspond to this practice. The Hagen site, which is a National Historic Landmark, is one of only two late pre-contact pre village sites ex excavated in Montana. Most um, people of this period later in Montana didn't typically live in permanent villages. Um, they didn't make decorative pottery or practice agriculture. Rather, they lived a nomadic lifestyle as bison hunters. The Hagen site's earthen lodge and the number of, dis of associated remains, however, suggest a permanent settlement. Agricultural implements include bison bone hoes and picks, uh, and those are among the thousands of artifacts that were recovered at the site. However, there is no direct evidence that these people ever grew crops. Rather, the remains of 340 bison suggest a hunting orientation and a lifestyle in flux. Oscar T. Lewis also served as foreman of the first pictograph cave excavations. 
The three caves near Billings were occupied over a long time period spanning several thousand years. The site is exceptional for its continuous occupation, for the rare preservation of perishable items, and also, of course, for its art. The extraordinary art in the caves was known to Billings' early pioneers, who claimed that in 1904, vessels containing red pigment, presumably ochre, were found intact in the caves. Nonetheless, Sioux, Cheyenne, Crow, and Blackfeet claim no knowledge of the cave's art. The oldest occupations in uh, pictograph and ghost caves are poorly documented, although there are very early artifacts in the collection. The site illustrates how archaeological um, excavations, however well intended, sometimes led to muddled information and jumbled sequences of occupation. The early excavations included the first professional recovery of human remains in Montana. But before carbon-14 dating and other technologies, skeletal remains were not considered particularly significant in understanding either chronology or typology. Field workers shockingly set up their camp within the excavations at Ghost Cave, encroaching on the delicate cave floor and walls. Some crew members even defaced the walls with graffiti. And unlike most excavations, officials encouraged tourism, and thousands of people trampled over the site in those first years. I love this portrait. Henry Melville Sayre, an English and geology professor at the Montana School of Mines, had taken a couple of courses in archaeology. So Sayre led the first excavations at Pictograph Cave. With Oscar Lewis as his foreman, Pictograph and Ghost Caves were excavated between 1937 and 1938 under the auspices of the WPA. Workers found the partial remains of nine individuals, all from the later period before contact. The exact locations or positions of the remains or associated artifacts were neither, neither noted nor uh, published. Get rid of that. Them. The two also claimed to have found evidence of cannibalism, 
and they backed up their story with the supposed discovery of human skull of a human skull with knife marks and human rib bones bearing butcher marks and human teeth marks. While Sayre's formal report to Governor Roy Ayers is considerably less flamboyant, he does mention evidence consistent with cannibalistic activity. This speculation has never been oh thank you. This speculation has never been substantiated. Billings author Glendalyn Damon Wagner wrote about the 1937 excavations and theories. Um, her work is important because it is the only published account of the excavation aside from project reports. While Wagner seized on the fantastic tales, she also painted a vivid picture of pictograph cave and what workers found beneath eight feet of wind and water eroded debris. Excavators, she wrote, found that the occupation eight, level, eight feet down revealed much about the lifeways of its inhabitants. Matted grasses for sleeping, cooking stations, and tools and weapons littered the area. A lack of glass beads and metal uh, indicates an early time period before Euro-American contact. And the cave floor also yielded the human remains leading archaeologists to question their presence in the midst of domestic activity. Sayre left the project and died at age 33 very soon after that. Dr. William Malloy assumed supervision of the Pictograph Cave excavations in 1941. He effectively ended mention of the human remains. Subsequently, several later studies focused on the skeletal pathology but meaningful cultural studies without provenience is impossible. Through the 19th century, Montana's tribes, like others across the North American plains, commonly interred their dead above ground, in trees, on scaffolds, or on platforms in lodges. The dead were not usually grouped together, but laid singly in remote and isolated places. Caves on rock ledges and crevices, as I previously described, were perhaps reserved for prominent people, but various types of, abro of above ground interments are likely just as ancient. It was a common uh, belief that open air interment allowed the spirit to travel freely, and that belief has persisted for thousands of years. Edwin Thompson Denick, who was a 19th century American fur company trader and superintendent at Fort Union, had both Lakota and Assiniboine wives. He collected ethnographic information from various sources, including his own in-laws. He maintained that scaffolding on trees was the most ancient and preferred method of internment among the upper Missouri tribes. Death set in motion activities on several levels. If the deceased was male, the face was painted red, then dressed in the finest regalia. The body was wrapped in a blanket, and if the person was prominent, a layer of scarlet cloth completed the shroud. In ages past, painted skin served this purpose. Weapons and personal items placed next to the bundle included everything needed in the next life. A tightly laced buffalo robe encased the entire assemblage. If there, were no, if there were no trees around, occasionally a hilltop location could, su could suffice. The bale and the deceased possessions were placed in the grave, and heavy stones rolled on top to deter scavengers. 
Sometimes the assemblage was left in the open uh, with stones as we saw uh, with the elderly man at Iron Jaw Creek. Sometimes prominent individuals were interred in their lodges. James Beckworth described a lodge burial of a Crow chief in the 1830s. But as Christianity spread, some opted for burial in cemeteries. However, open-air interments remained preferable. Near the confluence of the Yellowstone River and Alkali Creek, which once flowed at the base of the bluffs in the center of modern-day uh, buildings, several places recall thousands of years of occupation. Hundreds of River Pro lodges once lay below the rim, rim rocks along Alkali Creek. In 1876, Lieutenant James Bradley noted petroglyphs carved into the face of one of the bluffs slightly west of the present Metro Park. The crow didn't know who did, the, did the, who did the carving, but they did know the name of the bluff, the place of the skulls. An epidemic, probably smallpox, likely swept through the camp. Survivors handed down stories of how bodies covered the area. Horses and dogs ran wild with no humans to care for them. The few survivors and others later returned to collect the scattered skulls. They placed them on a shelf that ran along the cliff face about two-thirds of the way up. The place of the skulls is today called Skeleton Cliff, and it's not the same as what's called uh, Sacrifice Cliff on the other side of the Yellowstone, and that's a whole other story there. Um, but faint surviving art on the cliff face below the place of the skulls depicts a crying round face carved into the rock through a layer of red ochre. The image, which is a combination of petroglyph and pictograph, overlooks the Yellowstone River. The face is unique among rock art in Montana, but it's similar to at least one example in Washington State, and I'm not going to attempt to uh, pronounce this. Uh, it's known as She Who Watches, at Horse Thief Lake State Park near the Dallas and dates to about 1700 to 1840. It also combines pictograph and petroglyph art, overlooks a river in the Columbia, and is near a burial ground. Some theorize that the circles around the eyes represent the sunken eyes of sick people. The image is generally accepted as mortuary art. The Montana image is likely mortuary art that the Crow or some other tribe adapted from their western travels. Whatever the origin, the crying image identifies the area as a place where some tragic events occurred, and the use of red ochre follows cultural practices from the most distant antiquity. In 1877, the town of Colson grew below the bluffs and Dr. William Alonzo Allen, who was a longtime Billings dentist, was working in his blacksmith shop, and this is before he went to dental school, uh, noticed peculiar red streamers fluttering over a timbered outcrop across Alkali Creek above the place of the skulls. He discovered perhaps a hundred tree interments. The red blanket shrouds had unraveled and possessions of the dead littered the ground. The crime-faced petroglyph and the stories associated substantiate the theory that the cemetery was, either entirely or in part, 
the result of a dire event and out-of-the-norm mortuary practices. Whatever the source, the skulls on the shelf along the cliff that Bradley saw in 1876 continued a cultural tradition long practiced like that in the mound burials at the Hagen site. Montana's tribes, like others across the North American plains, most commonly interred their dead above ground. Red, as in the longest ago, continues to symbolize the life transition with red blankets or cloth substituting for ochre. Even in the dim past, caves and rock ledges may have been the graves of especially prominent individuals, but open-air interments were more common and are very ancient. The custom persisted until whites imposed earth burials because of health concerns. These earliest burials reveal practices and beliefs that transcend generations. The desire to place the dead in strategic places carries over to the present desire to locate cemeteries in beautiful settings or scatter ashes in places special to the deceased. From the dawn of time, objects sometimes accompany the dead as memorials and to assure a smooth transition to the afterlife. Belief in an afterlife was integral in the, the lives of early people. Such evidence today inspires reverence and respect for these uh, first Montanans. In 2014, on a rainy Saturday morning, a group gathered around a sealed box holding the scant remains of the Anzim child. He gave the scientific community incredibly valuable information, but it was time for closure. Tribal elders and scientists came together for his reburial, which was a compromise between the potential for further knowledge and native tradition. The Anzic child's potential to teach future scientists ended, but with closure, his spirit hopefully found peace. <laughs>